Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be here with y'all this morning. Grab your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Um, if you have one of the blue Bibles, looks like this. It'll be page 486. And if you do not own a Bible, take this one home with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. We want you to read it often. Um, we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are coming into the end of Matthew. And so these next few weeks, we're going to spend looking at the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Christ. And in what we're going to look at today, we're going to cover a decent amount of ground this morning. We're going to work through this story, and we're just going to walk through the story and talk about it. We'll make some observations as we go. Um, and then as we, at, at the end, we're going to look at um, Peter and Judas and the religious leaders, and we're going to look at their response to sin, their response to shame, their response to their guilt. The, the truth is, in life, there are times where we come face-to-face -face with ourselves. We come face-to-face -face with our own sin, that we cease to be able to hide who we really are. Often we're very good at deceiving ourselves, but there are times where we finally see it. And so we're going to ask the question as we walk through this text, what do we do in those moments? How do we respond to our own sin and guilt? So let's pray and then we'll walk through this story together. God, we ask for you to bless this time. We pray that you would help us to love your word, to trust your word. Um, and to see clearly Christ and his glory and his greatness towards us. And may we see our sin so that we might run to a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 46. Jesus has just been in the garden. He's been with his disciples. He, he uh, had the Last Supper. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you and a new covenant in my blood. And he says, as often as you do this, you declare my death until I come. He tells his disciples that one of you is going to betray me. They go through and they ask, is it, is it me? Is it me? Eventually Judas leaves. He goes out with his disciples to the, the garden and he tells them, wait and pray and keep an eye out. He takes Peter, James, and John with him a little further in. He falls on his face. He begins to ask the Lord if this cup can pass from me, let it. He's He's stressed, he's troubled, he tells him he's sorrowful to the point of death. He goes back, the disciples are sleeping, he wakes them up and says, you couldn't stay awake for an hour, keep an eye out, pray for yourselves, pray for me. He goes back, he does this three times, and eventually he says this, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. Sometime in the middle of the night, Jesus hasn't slept, the disciples have slept some because they're exhausted, but he wakes them up and says, see my betrayer is at hand, and while he was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. He knows where he is. He comes to him in the garden, and he's got a great crowd with him, with swords and clubs. Other gospels tell us they had torches and lanterns, and that some of these are Roman soldiers. Some of these are uh, soldiers that belong to the Sanhedrin, that are actually part of the temple group of soldiers, but they've come to arrest Jesus, to try to have a trial, to try to, to pin something on him so that they might kill him. So the, Jesus wakes up the disciples. He's been praying that this would pass, but now he's 
facing it. The disciples are waking up, and you know immediately if you've ever jumped out of a, a kind of a groggy sleep, but maybe you heard a noise or something, their hearts are beating, they're looking, they're, they're suddenly adrenaline's pumping because there's this large crowd of armed men coming towards them in the darkness, torches and lanterns, and they're surrounded. And Judas, it says, one of the twelve, so one of the men that had been closest to Jesus, had spent the most time with Jesus, had professed uh, that he believed and would follow Jesus, has come to betray him. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, for Americans, that's weird. Um, and often Americans have read this and tried to read things into it and tried to understand what's going on here. But this is a, for uh, Middle Easterners, this is not an odd greeting. He, he's basically saying the one I go greet, the one I go say hey to, this is, this is the man. Um, ben Johnson, who's one of our group leaders, was a missionary in Lebanon for 10 years. Uh, and they greet each other with kisses. They, greet, they do three kisses. Um, just on the cheeks, it's a, they, they get good at it, they know how to do it. He, he came traveling back, his home church was in Georgia, he was jet-lagged, he was tired, but he had to run by the, 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 his church building before he could run to his house and try to get some rest. He showed up, he ran into the custodian there who he knew, the custodian said, hey Ben, Ben said hey, and grabbed him and went to kiss him. And it goes over different in Georgia than it does in the Middle East. And so we read this and we're going, what, what's going on here? But really all that Judas has said is, it's going to be dark. These people would not have recognized Jesus. Maybe some of them have seen him. It's not like they had wanted posters up for him. It wasn't like us where we get to see famous people. We get to see him on TV that you might could actually run into a famous person at Walmart and recognize them. They would have heard about Jesus. They might have seen him in the temple, but the ability to recognize him in the darkness there's not much of a chance, but they wanted to go under cover of darkness and arrest him, and so that's how they worked out with Judas. Judas will identify him. Judas has been with him for three years. I bet Judas, in the dark, just seeing the disciples silhouetted, could probably tell you by the way they carried themselves who was who. And so he says, I'm going to identify him for you, the one I go greet. That's the one. So he walks over and he says, greetings, rabbi. Which you know that had to sound weird. Too hard trying to sound normal, a little too loud for some reason, a little too quiet. There's no way this came out right because he shows up with this band of people with swords and clubs. Hey, Jesus, greetings. But he grabs him, he kisses him. Jesus said to him, this is verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So these military soldiers knew as soon as he, whoever he greets, that's Jesus, that's who we're arresting. They, they come in, they grab him. They, they rough hands clamp down on him to hold him. Verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, and that's Peter, we find out in one of the other gospels, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So Peter, as soon as they grab Jesus, it's go time. He pulls his sword out. He said, I'll go with you even to death, and he meant it. He pulls his sword out, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. The reason he cut off his ear was because he missed. He was aiming to kill him. You don't swing a sword at someone's head unless you think, this is it, let's go. He, he missed. 
I'm assuming he came something like this. The high priest's servant went something like that. He caught his ear, cut it off. It would have been a bloody mess. Peter would have, I don't know if you've ever fought multiple people at once, um, but if you do, you attack one, you back up and keep your eye on the other one. So Peter doesn't follow that up with more strikes. He swings at that guy. I'm assuming he backs up and looks. And in that, that moment, that brief pause, when everything got much more intense because they've got swords, they've got clubs, they've got the disciples surrounded, we know at least there's 11 disciples. There's potentially more here. And they've come armed because they want to show, have a show of force to try to, A, keep there from being violence, or B, win if there is violence. I don't know if you fought multiple people at once. If you're actually going to get in a fight, it's better to be on the multiple people side. That's what they showed up with. We're going to make this go well for us. But Jesus, I mean, Peter cuts the ear off, and then it, this is what happens next. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Peter attacks. And in that breath in between when everything could have broken loose, Jesus says, put it up. That's not what this is about. How else would the scriptures be fulfilled? But Jesus says something very interesting here that I think we need to see. He says, do you not think that I could at once appeal to my father and he would not send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion is a thousand. He says, I have at my disposal at this moment over 12,000 angels. We see in the Old Testament where one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So if Jesus calls on more than 12,000 angels, Jesus says, if I want to just let the angels do it, we can kill the entire population of the earth in less than 30 minutes. If I want them to do it rather than me do it. I want, I want us to see something here. We just last week read where Jesus prays in the garden, Lord, if this cup can be moved from me. If we can go another way, let's do that, but not my will, your will be done. But even in that, Jesus says, Peter, if I want to stop this, I can. You see, it would show great bravery for Jesus to walk into this and to hand himself over and to then it be outside of his control and him have to face torture and death. But the reality is it was moment by moment inside of Jesus's control to stop this. He could have moment by moment chosen to not save us. He could have moment by moment chosen to let us receive the wrath we deserve. He could have moment by moment, lash by lash, strike by strike, hammer hit by hammer hit. He could have moment by moment chosen to stop this if he had just uttered the words he had at his disposal, more than 12,000 angels. He looks at Peter and he says, no, I'm, how else will it be fulfilled? How else will salvation come? How else will the rescue happen if I don't do this? And so Jesus isn't caught up in something that is beyond him and, and faces it bravely, which we would honor a man if they did that. But Jesus isn't caught up in something beyond himself. He is caught up in something that is under his control at all times, but willingly, humbly, graciously submits himself to it for the sake of those whom he loves. Don't miss that. Verse 55 
at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the disciples now facing, we're not going to fight. This isn't going to be done in hot-blooded anger. This isn't going to be done with adrenaline pumping. What's coming now is going to be dealt out in a cold manner. What's coming now is going to be calculated. What's coming now is going to be us humbly submitting to arrest. They flee. And Jesus says, all this has been done to fulfill the scriptures, that this was God's ultimate plan, that one day Christ would come, that he would die for sin, that he would die for sinners, that he would save a people for himself. This is something that God had intended all along. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now that's a bold move. Peter just cut somebody's ear off, runs, catches his breath, starts sneaking back to see what happens, joins the crowd. It had to be a pretty big crowd for him to just start walking with them and kind of keep up with them. It had to be a large group of people that had come out, and he goes, and then he sits with the guards, the guards of the high priest's um, headquarters, his, his area. He sits outside of where the trial is going to take place, but it does seem like he would have been able to see all this taking place, but he sits, and he just wants to see what's going to happen. Probably trying not to make a lot of eye contact, but make enough eye contact to not be suspicious if you've ever been on the run, you know what I'm talking about. And that's what Peter's doing. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Okay, this is a sham trial. This isn't a real trial. They've arrested him so that they can find somebody to give just enough on him that they can kill him. They're looking for false testimony testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. I want y'all to see that Jesus submits to, in order to undo, in order to redeem, he submits to uh, wicked justice, perverted justice, that he's caught up in this moment being small and having those who should be handling this well and honestly and appropriately, those in power, using their power for their own gain, and Jesus steps into that so that he might undo that. Verse 60, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. That's a testimony to the righteousness of Christ. That even with liars, they couldn't get anything to stick to him. That Jesus is sinless by human court would have been acquitted. And we're told that by a heavenly court would be acquitted. That he has no sin, that he's a perfect spotless lamb. But they're trying to lie about him and they can't find anything. And then it says, and though many witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Okay, that's true. He did say that. We're told that he said that and that he was talking about the temple of his body, that he was saying that the temple was the place where God meets earth. And then he uses that term for himself, saying that I am where God meets 
earth. I'm where humans are going to now be relating to God and connect to God and find sacrifice. He refers to himself as the temple, and he says, this temple will be destroyed, and I'll raise it in three days. But they, misunderstanding what he meant, are like, I'm pretty sure he's a terrorist. He said he's going to blow the temple up. He did say he would build it back in three days, which seems unlikely. But we know that he said he was going to destroy it. That's the accusation. Verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? See, one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's not trying to defend himself. He knows how this is playing out. He's not in the hands of the religious leaders. He's in the hands of God. The reality is Jesus is more in control of the situation than they are. So he's walking through this process. He's not there to defend himself. He's there to head to a cross. But the high priest stands up and yells at him. He says, if you know answer to make, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. That phrase seems a little cryptic to us. You have said so, but we have phrases like it. We have phrases like, yep, you guessed it. You called it. Bet. (laughs) Bingo. We got phrases like it. That's what he's saying. Nailed it. That's, That's the phrase there. You have said so is that kind of a phrase. He's not trying to just defer. He's saying, yeah, like you've you've, you've finally said an appropriate, we're now in the place that we need to be talking. You've called it. You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He doesn't just say, you called it. He doubles down on it. He makes it more. He quotes Daniel to the religious leaders. They're going to freak out. They understood exactly what he meant. But let's look at Daniel so that we can see this. Daniel chapter 7. This is what he's talking about, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He says, I'm not just the Son of God. I'm the Son of Man, the one that you've read about in Daniel. I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, oh, I'm the one presented to the Ancient of Days. I'm the one who's given dominion and glory in a kingdom. I'm the one that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. I'm the one who has a dominion that's an everlasting dominion. I'm the one that will not, my dominion will not pass away and my kingdom shall not be destroyed. Oh, you finally, you finally found it. I am the Christ, the Son of God, who has an everlasting dominion. 
I will be presented to the angel of death. The next time you see me, I'll be riding on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. The high priest tears his robes. It's an aggressive I mean, a response to this that, ah! The only place we see that is like WWE or something. This is not a muted response. Now, it's possible that this is a bit of a put-on because they've heard Jesus say things like this before out in the open, and they did not respond this way. But in this trial, this is what they've been waiting for, this moment when Jesus says something they can finally pin on him, and he stands up and says, what else do you need? He's claimed to be the Christ. The problem with the high priest's question is that he allowed no room for Jesus to actually be the Christ. Jesus actually is the Christ. Caiaphas has since passed away, and Caiaphas has since seen the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. But this moment they respond and they say he deserves death. I want you to know that Jesus does go to his death, and I want you to know that he is the Son of Man who is seated at the right hand of power. But the humility here, the grace here, the love here that is shown for sinners is beyond understanding. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They show him great dishonor. They slap him. Um, Men slap other men, open hand slap other men when they feel that they are in complete power over them is why I would be much more offended if you slapped me than if you punched me in the face. If you punched me, you're showing me some amount of respect. (laughs) If you slap me, you don't think there's going to be any return fire from my side. It's very (laughs) hurtful. They show him great disrespect. They spit on him. They strike him. They slap him. We're told in the other Gospels that they blindfolded him. That's why they ask, prophesy to us. Who slapped you? They line him up. They slap him. Jesus takes this. At any moment, he could stop this. But he submits to the will of the Father, and he loves sinners. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard... And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Well, that's a startling moment for Peter. He's sitting in the courtyard. He's paying attention to what's going on. He's heartbroken. He's probably trying to keep that together. The servant girl walks by and says, Hey, you were with Jesus. You're on his team. I don't know if you've ever been trying to hide something and someone pinpoints it. I don't know if you've been in class hoping the teacher wouldn't call on you because you had no clue what the answer was, and it's almost like they could see it in your eyes, so they called on you. I don't know if you've been in the middle of a lie and someone asked the exact right question they needed to ask to make you have to lie perfectly in that moment. This would have felt like lightning strike. It's 
But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, I, I'm one of the arrester guys. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. I'm assuming he waited an appropriate amount of time. Maybe he just started like, well, I was heading this way anyway. But he tries to move away from those people and that situation. He goes out to the entrance. He moves a little bit further out. He thinks maybe if this is going to keep happening, I need to be close to the exit. Another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Doesn't even talk to him this time. Just starts telling other people. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. This time he promises. I swear on the temple, I don't know him. He starts doing things that Jesus expressly said not to do. For the record, he lied last time. He's also not supposed to do that. But now he's lying with an oath. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He sounds like he's from Galilee. Not like he's from Jerusalem. He's from Hicktown. He's like, Dadgum, I don't know him at all. <laughs> and they were like, mm, I live here all my life. Mm, no. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. So this time he calls a curse. He swears. Last time it was an oath. This time it's, may God strike me if I know him. I've never seen him before. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter had told Jesus, I'll go with you to the, to the bitter end. I'll go with you to, to imprisonment and death. Jesus says, you're, you're going to deny me this very night. And he says, even if everybody else falls away, even if everybody says, I, I won't. And Jesus says, this night you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny that you know me three times. Peter says, no, I won't. And Peter does. The rooster crows and what Jesus had said was true and it breaks him. And there are moments where who we want to be and who we think we are, and who we tell ourselves we are, is crushed by who we are. There are moments where the rooster crows, and we wake up to who we are. Not who we think we are, not who we say we are, not who we are willing to pretend we are, but who we actually are, the decisions that we've actually made. And Peter got here quickly. He was doing fairly well. But when it came down to it and he was suddenly had this moment where he'd have to profess Christ and face the consequences, he decides not to. And there's the truth is that some of us have done pretty well until we got into some tight spots and then we quickly made several decisions that put us in a place where we suddenly realized we were someone we did not think we were. That we made some decisions pretty quickly and, and in some tight spots that suddenly told us that we weren't exactly as good as we were, as honest as we thought we were, as, as good of a husband, as good of a businessman, as good as, of a mom, as good of a friend, as good of a student. 
that what we had been telling ourselves about ourselves wasn't actually true. Peter goes out and he wept bitterly. Chapter 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to the death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. We'll see more of this later, but the Sanhedrin decides that Jesus deserves death. They're not allowed to perform capital punishment. The Romans gave them some soldiers, let them have some of their own soldiers, let them have some Roman soldiers that they oversaw, but they weren't allowed to do capital punishment. Every once in a while, mobs would come together and stone people, but it wasn't the Sanhedrin wasn't allowed to oversee that kind of stuff. And so they decide they want to put Jesus to death, and the, the charge against him is blasphemy, but they've got to come together and talk because the Romans don't care about blasphemy. They do it all the time. They're not gonna, that's not going to work, so they're going to have to have a discussion about what they're going to accuse him of. We'll see later they, what they accuse him of is sedition, uh, treason against the Roman Empire. But they, that's why they take counsel and they decide to deliver him over to Pilate. Because Let's figure out how to put him to death. Verse 3. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So Judas is going through a similar thing. He's seeing the outcome of the decisions that he's made. When he sees that Jesus is condemned, he realizes this, I shouldn't have done this. He changes his mind. The, the phrase there in the Greek is short of repentance. But it does mean he changed his mind. He decided this shouldn't have gone down this way. He shouldn't have done this. He changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. I want you all to see for just a second the absolute failure of the chief priests and the elders. We've, we've been seeing that Jesus has said this, that the, the temple is done, that they have failed, that this has not worked, that they have not responded the way they ought to. Judas comes to them and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the chief priests, priests, the ones who are supposed to stand between the people and God, the ones who are supposed to oversee the sacrificial system, say, what is that to us? We have nothing to do with helping people get past sin. That's on you. What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a, piece, a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Some of that phrase also comes uh, from Malachi. He just uh, he ascribes it to, to Jeremiah because he's the more well-known of the prophet. They do that a couple of times where they're just saying, this has been fulfilled and highlights the main prophet. But he's just showing that, that Jesus did come to fulfill Scripture and that these events do fulfill Scripture. 
So what do we do when we come face to face with our own sin? What do we do when we fail to live up to who we think we are or who we want to be? If you're much past high school, you've already begun to do that. You've already begun to see that. If you're in high school and middle school, you're doing that, but you've, you've not seen it. Ask your parents. They might can help you out. But as you get older, you begin to realize that this isn't exactly working out how I thought it was. You begin to see your sin. You begin to see your failures. You begin to have what you wanted to be and who you hoped you were and how you thought life was going to go, and that begins to fall short. And then we also begin to do things that we wish we could take back, that have consequences. And in, once you're past it, you're looking back going, how did I ever get there? How did I ever get here? How did I ever make these decisions? How on earth could I have been a person who did that? What do we do? What do we do in our sin and shame when it clings to us? When it threatens to destroy us? Let's look first at the chief priest. Verse 5, it says, In throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Y'all, this is insane. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He throws the coins back to him. They say, we don't have anything to do with that. That's on you. He leaves. They go scoop the money up. And they go... We can't put this in the treasury because it's blood money. And we don't want to break the law. The, the, the religious law. Y'all, they paid the blood money. Potentially out of that treasury. This is where Jesus told them, y'all strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're worried about all these little fine points of the law and you're, you're just blind. They don't see their sin. They know it's blood money, but they don't see how that's on them, even though they're the ones who paid the blood money. And then they have the audacity to stand there and have a discussion about uh, caring about applying the law. We've got to do this in a lawful way. Whenever you commit murder, you shouldn't murder on the Sabbath. And if someone pays you to murder, you need to tithe on the, on the earnings. It's like, what? You... What? This, this would be somebody who's saying, I know that divorce is wrong, so I'll kill my spouse. What? It's that level of insane. And for us to think that for one second we're not capable of this, like we haven't shown up to a community group and discussed minute little parts of the, of the scriptures and failed to acknowledge our sin. Like we hadn't discussed what it would be like if I did actually, you know, maybe... You know, I think Christians need to repent and we need to understand that God, but we, we're not, like we haven't highlighted the parts of our lives where we're obeying pretty well, that I, I give money and I, I do this and I'm generous here and I'm generous with my time so I don't have to do that or I'm, uh, it's, I mean, yeah, okay, I, I may be falling into some sexual sin, but I'm showing up to my group more than I ever have. We don't do this. One of the ways that we deal with our sin and our shame 
is absolute blind denial. God help us. This is one of the reasons why we want to be in community groups. This is one of the reasons why we show each other love by being in life with one another so that we can point out each other's blind spots. Not to make ourselves better, but to help us by God's grace see our sin so that we'll run from it, but they don't see it. And they head to destruction. Let's look at Judas, verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, and he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and and the elders. And he's saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? Let's look at this part first. See to it yourself. He sees what he did was wrong. He brings the money back. His, His hope is that he can talk to the chief priests and he can somehow maybe undo this. His hope is that maybe he can somehow atone for this. And they give them, give him the response that religion gives you. And I don't mean religion in the general sense that Christianity is a religion. I mean the process by which humans do good things to make God love them. How we do what's right and don't do what's bad so that we might be on good terms with God. They give him the same answer. What does your sin have to do with me? See to it yourself. That's the answer that religion gives you. That's on you. If you're good enough, you'll be fine. But it's on you to go be good, to go do what's right, to go be moral, to handle your affairs well. And that works if A, you're too blind to your sin, or B, you see your sin, but you minimize it to the point that you feel like you're probably not that bad. But that falls completely apart when you see your sin clearly. Because the idea that I'll be moral enough or I'll be good enough and that'll fix it falls apart because we can't fix it. Our good works cannot atone for our sin. Our good works, our our good behaviors, our self-made righteousness cannot atone for our sin. It cannot handle our shame. It's about as good as a spider web is at catching a rock. It can't do it. It falls apart. And you know this. Some of you are in this process right now. You've done some things that were terrible that you're ashamed to mention, that you feel shame creep up on you when you think about it. You've made some choices that make you, if you really look at it, make you into a person that you don't want to be. And if you admit that that's who you are, that it's crippling. So some of you are in the process right now of doing good religious behavior. As if somehow good religious behavior on this side will offset your wickedness on that side, but that's not how judgment works. This is the example I use. I've used it to try to help explain this to people at at different jobs I've had, try to help walk them out. But if you had a doctor who is an excellent doctor, like a real-world doctor house but nicer, and he was the reason why people's lives got saved. They were going to die. Nobody could figure it out, and this person would figure it out. And let's say he saves two lives a month, sometimes more, 50 lives a year, and then three, four times a year, three or four times, sneaks into someone's house and murders them. When he gets to court, 
He doesn't get to have a chalkboard and go, I've saved 50 lives this year, killed four people that y'all know about. I'm a plus 46. I rest my case. He doesn't get to do that. Because that's not how justice works. And some of y'all are figuring that out. I've been trying. I've been trying to show up. I've been trying to do good. I've been trying to, and it's not fixing this. It's not fixing what's wrong with me. It's not fixing what I did. It's not, re- it's not restoring what was broken. He gave the, the money back, but it didn't fix it. Some of you are figuring that out, and the truth is you're way, way, way further off than a plus 46. So he moves on to the next thing that happens when religion begins to fail us. Verse 5. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. What happens when we have to carry the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame and we have no religious ability to cover it up is we begin to hate ourselves. We begin to destroy ourselves. Some of you walk around daily, mentally, undercutting everything you do. You're wicked, you're terrible, you're evil, you're broken. In your group, when someone says they love you, you go, not if you knew the real me. You don't say that out loud, but that's what you say in your head. You, you end up destroying all the relationships you have. This can move on down the line to where you're destroying your body because you care so little about yourself because you know that you deserve destruction. Even if on most days you're not willing to fully admit it in those terms, that's what you're doing. So you're destroying yourself through guilt, through shame, through pain. Some of you eventually move into cutting. But it's this, this I deserve punishment. And the truth is you do. You're not wrong. Some of you look back at what you've done, the way you've used people, the way you've treated people, the way you've treated your spouse. Some of you, if you would just look at how you treated the people you love most dearly and you still hurt them. And those are the people you're giving your best effort to. And your best effort is at times pathetic. And if you stare at that, it's crushing. And you feel like, I don't deserve anything. I just deserve pain and destruction. And Judas jumps to the end of that line very quickly. He goes out and hangs himself. And some people work themselves to that eventually in life, trying to bear the weight of their sin and shame. And others do it daily, slowly, for years and years and years, punishing themselves for their guilt, trying to atone for their sin. Chapter 26, verse 75. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Through the words of Jesus, Peter sees his sin. Through the words of Jesus, Peter sees his failure. Peter weeps. He's broken over his sin. Y'all, the next time Peter shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, he's showing up to see Jesus, to listen to him and follow him after the resurrection. We see that Peter moves on into the church that he leads in the church. Peter saw his sin, saw his shame, and took it to Jesus. Peter saw his sin, saw his shame, was broken over it, and ran to the only one who could fix it. You see, Judas and Peter saw the same thing, that they had failed, that they had shame. Judas knew of no way to fix it, and Peter knew Jesus. Judas proves that he doesn't know Jesus. 
as if Jesus wouldn't accept him, as Jesus wouldn't give him an opportunity, as Jesus wouldn't accept repentance. He just takes the weight of his sin and shame and is destroyed by it. And Peter runs to Jesus with it. And that's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We talk about repentance all the time, that we would see our sin, that we would repent, that we would turn from it. The truth is, we want to be grieved by our sin. I think so many people, though, who only understand the worldly approach to this, think that the church gathers so that we can feel bad about ourselves, and that by feeling bad about ourselves, we can go out into the world and be motivated by guilt so much that we'll be good people. No. And if that's what you're trying to do, welcome let me explain this. It's so much better. The truth is we do want to grieve. We do want to be called to repentance because we want salvation without regret. Somebody say without regret. Now the people who really need to say without regret, say without regret. How on earth is that possible? Jesus Christ bears the sin of the world for all those who believe in him. He takes your sin. He becomes your sin. He dies to your sin. We are buried with him in baptism. We are raised with him in a new life. We are washed clean, and we have no regrets. Why? Why can we have sin and no regret? Because we have a Savior that washed us clean, and my sin only magnifies his glorious grace. My sin only works in me to produce praise. My sin only works in me to help me see, yes, how small and wicked I was. Yes, how much of deserving of destruction I am. When the enemy comes along and he begins that, let me tell you, he's, te he's preaching the first half of a good sermon. When the enemy comes to you and says, you are wicked, you are a sinner, let me drag up behind what you have done in the past. Let me tell you what you've done. Let me tell you how you've hurt people. Let me tell you what you did in high school. Let me remind you of your sin and your wickedness and your brokenness. Our response, if you belong to Jesus, is come on, get to the end. Get to the end. Tell me about Christ. Tell me about when he went to the cross. Tell me about how his blood was shed. Tell me about how he died. Tell me about how he was in a tomb and everything seemed dark. Tell me about when life came back into him. Tell me about how he saved me from my sin. Tell me about how I'm free. Tell me about how I have a salvation without regret. That is what is for you in repentance. We want you to grieve. We want you to hate your sin so that you will repent, so that you will find Christ. Worldly grief just feels bad and destroys you. Grief, when Jesus enters the picture, dies and rises again. We have a salvation without regret. Thomas Watson says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. For some of us, the first step is to hate our sin, to grieve over it, to have the rooster crow, to stare face to face with our wickedness. So that we can see how glorious Jesus is that he dies for sinners. The band's going to come back up. My prayer for you is that you will respond like Peter. The, the truth is, you are responding to your guilt. 
you are responding to your shame. Some of you are trying to cover it up. Some of you are trying to deny it. Some of you are trying to hide it. Some of you are trying to, to just muscle through. Some of you are destroying yourself slowly over time and feeling terrible about it as if somehow tearing yourself up, tearing your body up, telling your mental state up will atone for your wickedness. And the reality is Jesus atones for sin and Jesus alone. Only he sets us free. Only he provides salvation without regret. Some of you are Christians. You've placed your faith in Jesus, and you are still in the middle of your sin, not getting to the part of salvation, just grieving, just trying to atone for it by feeling bad. Stop. Do not rob the Lord Jesus of his glorious grace. Praise him that he saves wicked sinners like you. When you see your sin, turn from it and run to the one who saves. Some of you right now are trying to deny this. You're trying to hide from your sin. You're trying to cover it up through religious good works. And the reality is, religion says to you, what has this got to do with me? See to it yourself. And Jesus says, I'll see to it myself. Because your sin has everything to do with me because I'm going to cover it for you. May we hope in Christ, in Christ alone. We're about to sing a song called Nothing But the Blood. And I want that truth to sink into your head. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing else will fix it. No amount of good work, no amount of shame, no amount of feeling bad will fix this. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're good. Thank you that you save sinners. And we pray that in the middle of our shame and our doubt, that we would move from grief to repentance and from repentance to salvation without regret, that we would walk in the freedom provided by the cross, that we might proclaim the glorious grace of Jesus. Lord, may we repent of our religion that stands in the way of us loving you. May we repent of all of our self-righteousness. May we repent of our wickedness and the places that we failed. Help us to see ourselves clearly so that we may love you fully. In Jesus' name, amen.